is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Kidnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sevastopol. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on February 2nd, 2020 with Stephen Aronson, fourth-way group leader, writer, and retired psychologist. Steve received a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Connecticut in 1970. He taught as assistant professor of psychology in the early 70s at Arizona State and Alfred University. He also served on staff at hospitals in Phoenix and Maine. After three years of community mental health practice, he founded North Country Consultants, LLC, in 1975 to provide training and clinical services throughout Maine. He taught family practice to medical students at Maine Medical Center and designed and taught the first year of behavioral science at New England College of Medicine. In 1979, he co-authored a pioneering book, The Stress Management Workbook, An Action Plan for Taking Control of Your Life and Health, with Michael Macia, M.D. In the late 1990s, he co-founded Mental Health Associates of Maine, a multidisciplinary psychological psychiatric practice. Steve retired from clinical practice after 43 years in 2013. Intellectually and emotionally, Steve has always been drawn to the mystery of existence. His interest in consciousness as one of the most profound of these mysteries led him to psychology as a career. He submitted himself to nearly 20 years of his own analysis in a variety of disciplines, culminating in 12 years of Jungian analysis, during which he came to see the reality of the collective unconscious and the universality of symbols in religion and dreams. In 1982, Steve experienced a vision that was an overture to a series of synchronous events culminating in his discovery of the Gurdjieff work. He has dedicated his inner search to the methods of G.I. Gurdjieff since that time, accepting the responsibilities of leading groups studying this system. Steve's immersion in spiritual psychology led him to an interest in esoteric religion, particularly esoteric Christianity, and a recognition of the universality of the core of all traditions. It also profoundly influenced his understanding of the structure and function of the human psyche and his practice of clinical psychology. He has made a number of presentations to the All and Everything International Humanities Conference and participates in groups in Portland, Maine, Moscow, Russia, and Toronto, Canada. Although loving theoretical exploration of both psychological and spiritual questions, he remains dedicated to making the esoteric ideas come alive as actual subjective experiences. He believes that only through direct experience can such ideas find real meaning so that the system becomes the teacher. His primary objective has been to discover and share the practical application of these ideas and methods to the inner world of people. Steve is a founding member of the Seekers Cafe, a website supporting an online community dedicated to creating an effective portal to genuine spiritual practice. Stephen Aronson, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Rob. Good to have you back. So um, we usually, when uh, we have a return guest, it's our custom to uh, sort of check in if there's anything that has arisen in your life 
subsequent to our previous conversation that is notable that you would want to share with our listeners, et cetera. So uh, anything coming up on that? Uh, yes, something that has um, been a focus of mine uh, most of my life. It didn't really come into focus until I went into my own therapy, started trying to become a therapist. Subsequently, I've seen it in everyone I've met. There may be some people out there who don't have very much of this phenomenon, but I haven't met those people. So my presumption is everyone has got it in varying degrees. Remember when I was first studying uh, psychology, uh, and, um, Freud talked about Eros, the uh, life principle, the sexual principle, the creative principle. But he also talked about Thanatos, the death principle. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could not get my mind around that. I did not know what he was talking about. And I didn't know what he was talking about for a long time. So, one of the early things that I came across that was really useful to me was um, material by uh, an early Neo-Freudian, Karen Horney, who postulated what she called the tyranny of the shoulds. Mm -hmm. I should, I ought, I must, I have to. And I saw how these... Um, these declarative statements are imperatives. There's no negotiating. I have to. I must. I should. And I noticed in myself, and then I began noticing in my patients, uh, the use of these words when people would talk. For me, was sometimes when I talked a lot, often when I was seeing what was going on in my head. And I realized that just this verbal formulation puts an enormous amount of pressure on people because the shoulds leave no wiggle room. And even if I accomplished on an occasion what I should or ought, I must, typically it wasn't perfect. Mm -hmm. And even if it was good enough for perfect, that was yesterday and now I should, and I ought, and I must, again, today. Mm -hmm. So I, um, i got to say, I, I, I probably uh, road tested every, everything that I use with, with my therapy clients on myself first to see what would happen. I didn't want to take everything out on the road without it. It's, <laughs> an ethical, it's, it's an ethical uh, way, to do, way to work. Uh, yeah, I want to know what I'm working with and does it work and what are the uh, traps. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, I'd say to people, well, all right, uh, give me give me a sentence. Well, I should call my brother. I must go to that wedding. I have to accomplish this by this day. And so I would I would teach them uh, initially how to uh, sense their body, follow their breath and um, pay attention to their muscular tension. So having done that, uh, I'd say, okay, so you're very, very aware of your body now and say those 
things out loud. Okay, what do you feel? And they would report various feelings of tension. I say, all right, now let's just change this. Just use this rephrasing. You don't have to believe it. Just use it. Okay. Instead of saying I must, try saying um, I would prefer to, or be good if, or it would be nice if, um, I would prefer that. So they would use that phrasing and they say, so what's happening in your body? Say, oh, I'm not as tense and anxious. Okay, go back and try should not and must. Oh my God, I'm tense. Now go back and try. I would prefer or it would be nice. At. Oh, I'm relaxed. Isn't that interesting that a word will produce this effect on your body? Where did that word come from in your head? And um, we could always trace it pretty far back. Sometimes it's very clearly uh, they were modeling after someone else's verbal behavior as they talked aloud to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, they took it all, either was given to them <laughs> that you, know, you need to think the way I do. Um, uh, or they would, they would mimic it. Or sometimes they couldn't come up with uh, specific uh, remembrances like that, but uh, they could remember a climate or an atmosphere of that kind of pressure. So when I use that kind of language, inevitably I'm going to be under a lot of pressure and I'm going to feel bad about myself frequently because um, I can't do all this the way I must or should. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly going to make other people miserable because I'm going to put pressure on them because they must and should and have to also. Or I might get into the bizarre situation of saying, well, you don't have to be perfect, but I do. And that will set up its own unhealthy dynamics in relationships. All right, so it's kind of clear where that came from. Uh, it's very Pavlovian in its conditioning, as are many of the basic kind of neurotic, what we call neurotic symptomatology and behaviors that, that bother us. Uh, they're really habits that right. are typically mm-hmm. very early in life, um, can be picked up later, but typically it's very early. So related to this, I came across another phenomena, phenomenon and uh, this one, although she was not the first, the author Marion Woodman uh, talked about as the um, addiction to perfection. Mm-hmm. Now, people who are uh, trapped by should, sorts, and must are necessarily perfectionists at heart, but uh, that directive demands that they try to become them. Perfectionist, but there are other people who really suffer terribly. They do things, don't do things perfectly. And this was more interesting, is there's more subtlety here. Sometimes it's directly modeled. You have a perfectionistic parent or sibling or somebody like that. Uh, and for whatever reason, maybe your typology or direct tutoring or uh, vicarious learning, you you pick this up. But I also came to see that perfectionists are certain kinds of people. And I realized by again looking at myself 
that it's even more interesting than classical conditioning component. I think that real perfectionists are people who are visionaries. They can literally somehow see or sense or feel into the higher dimension of potentiality. They can recognize what something would look like or be like or function like if it were perfect. Hmm. This, uh, by associating related uh, to uh, Plato's world of uh, form, world mm -hmm. of forms that I'd read about when I was younger, and it be that began to take on a, a reality for me. Well, let me let me uh, ask you right right here because this is an interesting point. Is it the conception of or the vision of perfection or the possibility of perfection that drives a perfectionist as opposed to seeing into an objectively real state of affairs? It's what what there is a subtle identification with is that there is a perfect that can be moved into because just as you described it reading and encountering plato sort of set you up to think in terms of ideal forms or that there was there was some sort of uh, transcendental ideal that could mm -hmm. be attained whereas someone with a different um uh you know identification with a philosophical grounding may come to the conclusion that uh you know uh, perfect is the enemy of good enough and that that every effort is uh, sufficient, but the next effort may be, you know, better. Well, yes, thank you. You just enunciated the cure, but that's a that's an attitude, it's a frame of mind. Yeah. And 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 someone with a real perfectionist uh, idealism has great trouble turning that corner because it feels like. They're cheating or betraying the ideal or betraying themselves. Yeah. And if they also have a bunch of should and oughts tossed out to that, it makes it even more difficult. And I, so we talk about this, we'd explore it. And, and I recognize that uh, the world of the ideal is a world where nothing happens. <laughs> is the dimension of all possible blueprints. Everything that actually gets manifested into uh, what we know as reality at our level um, is going to be a variation on that original blueprint. It's and, not but, going to be the thing. Right, it would be contaminated in the, from well, the perspective of, of the perfectionist by its contact with the real, the, the real, as you were just putting it, the real Inevitably, world. because here, uh, things erode. We have wind and rain and you put something down. It's the perfect arrangement. You leave the room, you come back, someone's moved it. They've knocked it over. Uh, there's right. motion here. And there are all sorts of other variables that make it impossible for an I perfect idealized version of whatever it is to actually appear here. First, it's got to be translated through um, 
my if it's, it's if it's uh, an idea, it's got to be translated through my capacity for language, mm-hmm. or if it's an object uh, through my capacity to use my hands or tools to and material to try and recreate. It's all a representation of the ideal that I somehow saw or felt. And even if it comes close and appears to my satisfaction for a while, it won't stay that way. It will change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what the actual materialized object. If my ideal is a relationship or a moment or um, how I look going out to the party, where, I mean, how permanent is any of that? Everything here fluctuates. So the uh, addiction to perfection and the shoulds uh, began to appear for me. Then I don't recall uh, how I began. I, I think I just started seeing it, that the voice in our heads, that uh, this is uh, Iago uh, <laughs> from Hamlet. He whispers into our ear and first tells us that he is us. This is me thinking. It's in my head. I hear the thoughts. Who else could they be? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not. I'm sane, so I don't think the CIA is talking to me into my head. It's got to be my voice. So I must pay attention to this. We have that problem with all of our thoughts. Uh, <laughs> it takes a lot of training and special circumstances to be able to uh, listen to your thoughts um, without believing that you're the one creating them. You're just eavesdropping on this activity in the head. So this voice um, will say things like, uh, you could have done better, which is true. It always leads with a factoid. Mm-hmm. You know? You're shorter than he is. Um, they may not like you. Um, It'll give you something like that. Mm-hmm. And because it's quite plausible or even true, you listen. Huh? Tell me more. And then begins a, a subtle twist. There's not spoken therefore. And I'm both because. So because you didn't do well enough, therefore, you're not as smart as you thought you were. Other people will notice that. You're going to either have to hide this or lie about it, but inevitably they'll find out, and then and, and it just continues like this, and eventually it winds up with the equivalent of you're going to be homeless in a gutter, in anchorage, and freeze to death, <laughs> <laughs> and no one will know your name. <laughs> it has that impact, so that, um, and I began to see that, on the one hand, this thing is infinitely clever. Why it's so hard to get a hold of. First, because you think it's your voice. Uh, second, because it introduces a fact of some sort that is either irrefutable or plausible. And then it, and the, then you don't see the twisting. But in another way, it's really stupid. And the what you, so it's very hard to spot if you're just tracking the verbalizations because they can vary a lot. Although if anybody studies it for a while and writes them down, it's not that many. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's got a basic repertoire that you can pick up. But the other 
the really dead giveaway is that the moment it gives you the twist, you feel gutted. Yeah. How, you feel, or like you feel like your power, your power has been uh, depleted or sucked out. You can out. feel the power draining. Yeah. It's like letting the air out of a balloon. It deflates you. And then if you keep listening, it gets worse and worse and worse. I begin wondering, what is that? What is that about? Then, well, not necessarily in order, but uh, it's very interested in, in vampire mythology. Hmm. You know, I wasn't so interested in Frankenstein and other things, but the vampire was very interesting to me. And then I realized that this thing is vampiric. It feeds off of us. That feeling of def deflation is your life energy, your psychic energy, the energy of your potentiality of being drained from you. Mm -hmm. well, what's it? It's eating you. Yeah. What, now, why would it be? What is that about? So I read vampire books and I watched a number of vampire movies, thought about this over the years. Realized the, the, the uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. The basic theme is, uh, it starts with women. That's another issue. I'm not sure what that means psychically, but it could, if we look at woman as a representative of our feeling component, our feeling center, mm -hmm. you know, uh, that's probably where it begins because that's where it starts to train us. The bite is in the head, but uh, our blood is being trained from our feelings. So the first thing that happens is you got to get through denial. So these women are getting fainter and weaker and weaker and people are wondering what's the matter is it influenza is it tuberculosis is it coronavirus what what's going on <laughs> and, and then somebody has this off the wall idea and says i think we need to spend for send for specialists let's call professor van helsing from vienna he says who's professor van helsing yeah. let's just talk to him so the professor comes he examines the patient. He looks at the situation. He says, I know the problem. What we have here is a vampire. And of course, the old people say, we're paying this guy? Send him back to him. What do you mean a vampire? Come on, what's the matter with us? Oh, no. This is a vampire. And if you don't listen to me and do what I say, she will die. And what, what, what do we have to do? Well, we have to put a crucifix around her, and we got to wrap garlic around the windows and all for this. And when you find the vampire, you don't negotiate with it. You don't make nice to it. You don't offer it a deal. You drive a stake through its heart. Or you expose it to sunlight. Later there was the silver bullet. Um, I'd like the stake in the sunlight. And this thing is, is undead. What a strange strange idea the undead it's not alive but it's not it's walking around so it's not dead either i suppose in some ways like maybe it's like a virus also yeah it's it's, uh, it's interesting as you talk about this i'm recalling some uh, literature and like magical literature that describes um 
things called larvas and phantasms, which are essentially mm-hmm. like these psychic uh, viruses or, uh, uh, or you know, phantasms that tend to be a little more uh, intentional. A larva tends to be pretty unconscious, and it's like you might consider that like a bad habit that you just keep repeating. Mm-hmm. But uh, a phantasm has more sort of survival, which I think it has a quasi-intelligence in a sense of what you're describing. And it's an interesting uh, model because it's, um, it, in one sense, it objectifies this thing that we're just, we're talking about as other, that it's not actually a part of myself. Here's where it gets really tricky, really tricky. Because at one level, that's absolutely true and it's absolutely essential to overcome this that I separate myself from it. So as I mentioned before, I I need to um, keep a journal of these negative thoughts, what triggers them, you know, how they make me feel. So I can build up a a repertoire of signs to look for. I have to train myself that every time I feel this um, depletion of energy, this sudden feeling of being gutted, I've just been bitten, whether I realize it or not. What was I thinking? What was I saying to myself? What is this situation? Mm-hmm. So it's not me. But this led to the obvious uh, unhelpful uh, detour promulgated uh, by a lot of religions that it must be some alien outside entity that has invaded me. You know? So here is the devil, the master of lies. Now here is Satan. Well, if it's outside of me, then I'm, I have nothing to do with it. I'm totally innocent. I mean, if I do these rituals, it'll go away, but it's not really about me. But it is about me because it's inside of me. And although um, I didn't ask it in, I didn't even know about it till it was well established, I'm now responsible. So in that way, I guess it's, it's sort of... Well, in one sense, you did ask it in uh, if you gave attention to the thought. Right, which is a really an unfair way of putting responsibility on me, but technically it is correct. <laughs> and someone came knocking at your door. Right. <laughs> oh, come in. Right. And so how, how, does, how does this thing develop? Well, I think it develops from the shoulds and from the perfectionism and from life experiences when we're little. And I've never met one who doesn't have one. Some are much more vicious than others, and they'll lead to uh, drug abuse, and they'll lead to suicide, they'll lead to violence. For most of us, they just intermittently make us miserable. And, you know, then we can pass it on to other people and pass it around. So I began to think of it as uh, equivalent to a, a psychic autoimmune reaction. Mm. Now, the psychic autoimmune reaction uh, I saw was most clear in cases of child abuse, neglect, emotional, physical. So the child comes into the world, not just with program for his body, her body, and if the environmental conditions and the food is sufficient, whatever, then uh, that just goes on its own. It's automatic because if there's severe interference, you you got stunted growth. You get all sorts of problems in the physical blueprint that don't let one uh, grow into your physical potential. 
But this is worse. And this is what I uh, saw last night when I was uh, working on this issue. What does seem to separate us from the animals? And, uh, I'm, I'm a student of G.I. Gurdjieff, who in my opinion is the uh, most potent psychologist to come along probably in a couple of thousand years. And Gurdjieff talks about the possibility that we can, what he and many others uh, uh, call, wake up inside of ourselves. That there's a potential to become aware of our thoughts, potential to become aware of our feelings, potential to become aware of our bodies uh, in a very heightened way that allows us to have the experience that I'm uh, a passenger inside the body and the body's having the feelings and reactions. The body's producing the thoughts. I'm something else. Well, so perhaps this, this is a possible stage for human beings psychically to reach. But I think we all come equipped with this possibility if uh, the genetic material for our neurological structure is reasonably intact. So child comes into the world and long before it is able to verbalize before the frontal cortex has sufficiently developed, it's learning, it's learning in the womb. What's learning? Well, its body is learning and the emotional reactivity that is part of the body's hormonal response system, the autonomic nervous system, that's learning. It's learning the way all animals learn. It's learning in a Pavlovian fashion. Uh, if the environment around me is toxic, I become tense. If the environment around me is relaxed and, and affectionate, I relax. So long before there are words, the child's body and feelings is beginning to um, develop an assessment of its surroundings, whether they're safe or not, comfortable or not. I'll add nurturing or not. Nur yes, yes, that's the main thing, nurturing or not. I mean, we know from animal studies that I hope are no longer being done, so awful, uh, particularly with mammals, that uh, if you don't give infants uh, a lot of nurturing touch, uh, neurologically, they don't develop appropriately. They right. hurt themselves, they hurt, hurt others of their kind. Their, their, growth, their, their, their physiological growth may be stunted severely as well. As well, yes. So uh, being born is only uh, chapter one. Uh, we're still developing, and we're developing continuously throughout life, and of course in a very interactive way with our environment. How can we not? So... It seems to be somewhere between the second and fourth year for kids on average. There's a lot of normal variability uh, that sufficient cognitive potential begins to come online as the brain continues to grow so that the, the, the existential question, who am I, begins to arise, not necessarily in those words, 
by, by, by the time the child is starting to wonder about that, it's already had lots of experiences that correctly or incorrectly give it clues. If the environment's not nurturing, maybe I'm not lovable. Maybe I'm insufficient. Uh, certainly if I can't do anything to make the environment respond to me, I'm incompetent and vice versa. People will talk to children and they'll say things that children may, uh, will interpret. They're going to interpret. So good boy, good girl, smart boy, dumb girl, those kinds of things. They come from the parents, they come from the teachers, uh, sometimes directly. Often it's not direct. The child intuits, sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly. But kids are hypothesis-making little computers. The human brain is designed to look for patterns. We can't not do that. And uh, for a young, inexperienced child, uh, the only world they know is the narrow little environment they're growing up in, which is an almost insignificant slice of the whole thing. But for them, it's the universe. It's colossal. It's everything. So they take it to heart, so to speak. And the beginning of my sense of myself begins to, the roots grow out of whatever the quality of that soil was. So in cases of abuse and neglect, when the child actually is not misinterpreting, but is the subject for for violence and cruelty and lack of uh, nourishing behavior. The child is faced with a colossal problem, not just in terms of physical survival. How do I emotionally and socially survive here? What does this all mean? So all life, from what I can determine, one of the things that distinguishes life from non-life is that life is sensitive to its environment and will make adaptations in response to the environment. So uh, here's where well, Darwin is a whole other question. But all life is programmed to move towards comfort and away from discomfort. It's built into the autonomic nervous system. Comfort presumably means we're a little safer, we might live a little longer, have a chance to breed discomfort, usually means danger, so we want to move away from that. It's a very crude measure, but so you got a beginning, there's no subtlety there. Yeah, I think the uh, the, the current term in the literature is homeostasis. Okay. Yeah, how do I find homeostasis? Because the uh, activities of the autonomic nervous system are designed, I mean, if there's danger, to be really uncomfortable. You know, and uh, we immediately uh, have floods of adrenaline and cortisones go through our body and it prepares us for fight or flight so the muscles get tense and uh, the breathing changes and you sweat more and you, you don't digest your food so well and Maybe your head gets fuzzy. I mean, it really sucks. And it's designed to, it's nature's way of screaming, get out of this situation. You're not going to perpetuate the species. If you stay here, you're going to get eaten. Leave. Likewise, the um, 
uh, pleasure hormones, oxytocin, and for example, uh, it's released through touch and affection. They're wonderful, very relaxing. So that tells the body, you want more of this. This is safe. So, and this is long, long, long before there's any capacity for conceptualization because all life does this. So human infants and human children, little children are going to do this also. And survival depends on it. Animals that are successful live. Animals that don't die, they don't breed. And so eventually the species is pretty successful. But we're more complicated than that. So the child, like any animal, tries a variety of things to improve their situation. You know, if I cry, do I get attention? Or if I cry, do I get abandoned? You know, if I smile or if I frown or if I... So the child will run through, through whatever its repertoire is. And again, this isn't, you don't think about it this way. It's just automatic to try and try and try and try. But if one is in an environment that is not going to respond positively, it doesn't matter what you do. Now, what do I do with that data? How as a little kid do I come up with an unspoken hypothesis? Well, as adults, with our level of experience, we look at that situation and say, Oh, kid, it's not your fault. You just got a raw deal here. These people around you are not helpful to you. They're hurtful or they're dangerous. But a child can't think that way. If as a little kid, I look at these giants that I'm in, who totally control me, and it dawns on me that they're crazy. They're dangerous. You know? How am I going to survive that? I'll be flooded with a level of uh, corrosive negative uh, fear hormones that'll just wipe me out. It's maybe why I can't study in school, why I, you know, my growth is stunted, why I act out. I'm desperate. But there is a temporary way out. And that temporary way out is to assume, ah, oh, it's not them, it must be me. Why do I think it must be me? Well, I may be in a situation where they're telling me it's me. You know, if you were a good kid, mommy wouldn't be drunk. If you were a better kid, we wouldn't be having these problems. We, I wish you'd never been born. You're the problem. People say this thing, these things to their kids sometimes. Or even if they don't directly, a very sensitive child may come up with that conclusion. It must be me. I think that is, although it's got terrible consequences that we'll get back to in a moment, uh, it's probably the most logical, rational thing the kid can do at the time. Because if it's me, I've got a project. And I'm small, they're big. I can't get to them, but I can get to me. I can try and be a better child in whatever way I think is going to help. So I try and I try and I try and I try. Of course, if it's an environment, if that's the problem, my efforts don't work. So that must mean on top of everything else, I'm too stupid to figure it out. But I have no choice. So I have to keep going. And here's a situation where negative results 
do not change my hypothesis. I got to stick with this story because the alternative is just too devastating. So maybe by the time a child is old enough to begin to consider something different, years and years of this kind of conditioning are in them. So in a, in a way, I, this treating children is a direct attack on their soul because the doorway to the soul is through a correct, uh, correctly identified path to self-understanding. And if that is so brutally contaminated at the beginning, then how is that person ever going to actually find themselves? And very sadly, uh, they often grow into adults who either destroy themselves or destroy other people, or are just people who can't ever quite reach their potential because uh, of how they're, they're crippled with this. So the inner voice might, might have something to do with that as a way to compensate. And yet, it's, I used to think it's not there to help us. It's, it's really there to destroy us. It's, it's self-hating. But this other idea last night, it has to do with perfection. Uh, so that it, it's, it arises as a sort of a defensive response or it's a, a, a support for this intractable situation. I, I, I think I want to, I also want to make the point that, you know, and I, as you're saying this, I can look at my own upbringing where I had loving parents and, you know, a reasonably stable, uh, uh, home situation, and yet a lot of these issues still arose, not to the chronic level that uh, happens for someone who's, uh, you know, seriously abused. But I think we all have this. I mean, we all inherit this. Uh, we all, we, we all do. Our parents have it. Our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, going back countless generations. But let's look at it this way. Let us suppose, for the sake of discussion, that uh, at conception, we're not only what's carried in the gametes is not only the blueprint for the body and the nervous system and a certain package because of how they're configured of potentialities, you know, the possibility that one can be a musician or one's going to be tone deaf, you know, that you can paint or, or you can't, or mm -hmm. you can be a professor or you can be an explorer. Those kinds of patterns, I think, probably are not entirely environmentally created. I think the uh, part of the search for self is to discover what my package is. What is my blueprint? Mm -hmm. That's going to lead me to what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And ultimately, I'll probably be a lot happier than if I'm in a life that does not fit my blueprint. But along with that blueprint is also the seed for the kind of consciousness that I'm talking about. That when the frontal lobes sufficiently develop, uh, we have a capacity for inner self-observation, inner assessment, um, the potential for inner objectivity, which you have to work for because by that time it's so contaminated with all this other stuff. And ultimately, to question the nature of 
this consciousness in me? Is it solely mine? Or is this a universal energy that we all share? And how I experience mine depends on how my equipment is structured, how much it's been damaged, and to what degree I can repair it, which is another really interesting question. How much can I repair my mind and my heart from these early early um, traumas or misunderstandings? So we may come into life with a lingering sense of um, where we came from. That, that, uh, that dimension of possibilities, which in fact we may have tasted perfection or <laughs> uh, known who we were. And now we find ourselves in these bodies um, with all these years of conditioning behind us when we're finally starting to think about this. And it's that lost sense of home you know, that I'm supposed to be striving for, supposed to get back to, kind of a prodigal son kind of feeling. So when the this vampire or gremlin or voice develops and says, you're not good enough, um, maybe it is a sour reaction to the fact that I'm, I'm so far from home. I've forgotten. And how do I get back there? Now, uh, my, how I understand Gurdjieff's sense of this, so he talks about remorse, which he, he delineates uh, from guilt and shame. Guilt and shame have to do with personality, I think, and appearance yeah. and social acceptability. But remorse is, he says, is a, a feeling that comes up when one part of me when in touch with um, something much higher, you know, the, the kind of energy that that we came from, suddenly wakes up and looks at other parts of me and sees that they're not behaving <laughs> in the way that uh, I wish they would. They're, they're not as awake. And I, I, I have a taste of my the potential that I should be trying to live into and how far I am generally from that because of all this stuff I carry from, from life. And that produces a taste of remorse. Now my own experience with remorse is that it, it really has nothing to do with shame or guilt. It has to do with uh, uh, a sense of, um, I wish I could have a chance to do that again, but mm -hmm. I can't. So, but, but it stays with me and I can use the taste of that to help remind me to kind of wake up inside myself and try again in this moment and the so, next moment and the next moment. Would you say that um, remorse in this uh, system then is more of a feeling? It, it, it seems to operate not at the conceptual level, where something like guilt seems to be purely in that sort of vampiric uh, yes, that, operational that's a, mode. I like that. Yeah, that that would fit. Guilt and shame have to, they're what the vampire is telling you. But remorse, I think, comes from a much higher place that uh, wishes us well, even longs for us to continue our climb in its direction, and is giving us the taste of remorse as a help.
Yeah, or that it's a natural, a natural response of the body in the same sense that if I uh, put my hand near a hot stove, I'm going to feel heat. Mm-hmm. And, and, and from that, have an understanding of what to do. It seems like remorse operates in that way in its purest form that it, it guides me in a sense of, uh, uh, what would be a harmonious response to a situation. Yeah. And I just had this uh, further thought as you were talking, Stuart, let's see if I can elaborate it. The death wish. Why would there be a death wish? Okay. So continuing in this line of examination, if I unconsciously have a sense that um, uh, I'm far from home, down in this body, on this planet. And it's just too hard. I can't measure up down here. I can't measure up up there. Um, but maybe if I die, I can go home. And just skip the whole whole experiment. Because this, uh, this demonic uh, vampiric voice does seem to have the goal of ultimately, if you're susceptible enough, driving you to suicide. Why would it want you dead? Doesn't make sense. But maybe in, in the sense that it's a misunderstanding and that um, it's a way of uh, just skipping the life experience, at least theoretically. So of course, if we're having life experience because the life experience is the only thing that will facilitate further development of our inner psychic qualities, so we have to be here. We have to go through all this and work on this puzzle because all of that uh, effort changes our being and our understanding, hopefully in an appropriate and accurate direction. Uh, it's hard work. It's a lifetime's work. So one one thing that came up for me when you talk about Thanatos or the death wish is that um, death archetypically is like the ultimate letting go. And it seems in this kind of psychic functioning that there is a place for the capacity to let go. So things get really bad if you're feeling psychically cramped and tense and uh, defensive. Letting go is not just necessarily a physical death, but it's just a release from that. And to some extent, I wonder if, you know, the the wisdom that comes from a variety of traditions of uh, you know not being attached to the fruits of your action, the ability to disassociate or disidentify, might be tied into this uh, this quote unquote Thanatos or this uh, uh, death wish, if you will. Yeah, that that feels that feels right because the the great traditions, of course, talk about the necessity <clears throat> as a stage in our inner psychic development to reach a point where we can, as it's phrased, die to ourselves. We have to die before the body dies. What what does that mean? Right. One of the things that helps with the uh, escape from this vampire is uh, accepting that I'm not perfect. I can't be perfect. I'm not supposed to be perfect. And whether I make mistakes or not, they're here for learning. And I can't please everybody. And everyone's got one of these things in them. So when they seem to be judging me, they're really just judging themselves and projecting. I mean, this is a very mature 
leap to take. But eventually, it is absolutely possible to get sufficiently free from identification with these personality concerns so that when this thing tries to bite you, you can just brush it off. It doesn't have any impact anymore. Why? Because it's attacking my self-image. But if I've already died to my self-image, it doesn't no good to attack it because I've already dumped it. I dumped the self-image. I'm not that. All right. So it's it's uh, it's biting in on something that uh, I'm not attached to anymore. Right. So there's no there's really no blood there anymore. Yeah. Now there's a very nice little workbook called Taming Your Gremlin. I don't remember the author. It's um, got a lot of um, cute little drawings and. Uh, exercise you can go through to help identify this thing. And I think they called it the gremlin and they made it cute because if they talked about it as a vampire, nobody would buy the book. Well, maybe, maybe it's also because there are, I've certainly seen articulated in a number of different traditions, <clears throat> at least from my own teacher, that one of the things that's important to realize is that, you know, the phenomena that you're calling vampiric, um, actually contain information that's important to be able to digest or absorb. Exactly. Yeah. Either the vampires either can eat me or I'm going to eat the vampire. There we yeah, go. so that, that's an interesting point because eating the vampire is, <clears throat> in a sense, the essence of the tantric tradition. It's, mm. it's a, this great uh, metabolism but isn't that what I do when I take in an idea and I look at it from different angles and I see more and more deeply my understanding, my attitude changes. Uh, where does that new energy come from? I'm, I'm, I'm digesting the concept, digesting the idea. My attention and my openness uh, are like enzymes that begin to dissolve it. And uh, trapped within that, what seemed to be a dense something, are many, many uh, other layers. Uh, almost everything is holographic, it seems to me. If you bring the right attitude, the right attention, um, everything is ultimately connected to everything. So the things that are adjacently connected to this thing you're looking at begin to appear, and then the things connected to them. And then it's no longer what you initially thought it was. It doesn't feel the same. Well, well and the point would be that um, as you're you know, in this metaphor that you're elaborating, um, where you've been losing energy to this manifestation that uh, you're describing as vampiric, um, when you die, when you in turn digest that, then you're regaining the energy that you lost. Yes. And and that's um, and that leads to further self-integration um, of that which was lost. So so that's important. Yeah. It does, and again, this is uh, uh, a point that Gershaw makes very, very, very interestingly. Uh, as you guys know, he says that we, we have three basic foods. There's food for the body, which is organic, and water, and, and then we need air, which is obviously also for the body, but he says air is food for the feelings. Very interesting. And he says, you, you can live for six, seven weeks without organic food. You can live only four minutes or so without oxygen. 
But it's just we have a, this third kind of food, which is impressions. It says we're eating impressions all the time. It says if they totally stop, you die. But we can't, can't even approximate that in experiment because with sensory deprivation experiments, the subject is having all sorts of interior experiences. Like, where's the light? Where's the sound? What's going on? Who am I? So there's constant stimulation of the nervous system. Keeps the nervous system humming all the time. And we know it ha happens in the uterus too, so it's probably from conception to death. The nervous system is constantly being fed. And um, what's obvious to us is that the ways in which it's fed from the outside through our exterior sense organs, we've got these sensors on our body, you know, like in any instrument, they pick up different levels of vibratory activity and electromagnetism and pressure from the outside, and that's translated into electrical activity that runs up our neurons into our brain or spinal cord, and um, it produces what we call experiences. I mean, how bizarre is that? Who could have thought of that kind of thing? So we have these experiences because of the stimulation from the outside. And of course, we, as we talked about earlier, we draw conclusions from that because our body lives out there. We live in our body and we gotta, we gotta survive. And because we're social animals, we have to survive in the pack as well. Uh, I'm sure our ancestors who weren't very sociable got kicked out of the cave and there aren't that many of them around anymore. Hmm. Well, now we do a better job probably taking care of them than they did back then. But um, you've got to figure out a way to be liked and supported by the people you're dependent on. And then there's the, the intellect. There are these big frontal lobes that are designed to digest ideas and concepts and look for patterns and come up with hypotheses and so a lot of them are false positives or false negatives. Presumably, through testing and testing in life, we learn from mistakes and get more and more clear, but always. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on February 2nd, 2020 with Stephen Aronson, fourth-way group leader, writer, and retired psychologist. He has made a number of presentations to the All and Everything International Humanities Conference and participates in groups in Portland, Maine, Moscow, Russia, and Toronto, Canada. Steve is a founding member of the Seekers Cafe, a website supporting an online community dedicated to creating an effective portal to genuine spiritual practice. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. In this hour, we continue our pre-recorded Zoom conversation with Stephen Aronson, fourth-way group leader, writer, and retired psychologist. Stephen has made a number of presentations to the All and Everything International Humanities Conference and participates in groups in Portland, Maine, Moscow, Russia, and Toronto, Canada. Steve is a founding member of the Seekers Cafe, a website supporting an online community dedicated to creating an effective portal to genuine spiritual practice. But we, so we have impressions inside as well. Our thoughts are interior impressions and our feelings are interior impressions. And our hunches 
in our dreams and where are the sense organs inside that allow you to see and feel and taste and touch a sense of inner balance we seem to have somehow the equivalent of all of our exteriorly directed sense organs somehow we have equivalents of those in our inner psychological emotional world so that we can feel our way around we can see we can hear and so all these things coming from inside many of which are reactions to what's coming in from the outside but not all of them you know they're they're coming from inner processes as well and may under some circumstances be coming from levels far above our how we function levels far above the material world that we see around us and they appear inside and something somebody is in there to receive them and experience them it's all digestion no, but what we eat some things are so good for us to eat right. and how how we eat and how we digest uh, all of these are big questions and um, maybe if we were all raised in wonderfully humane loving environments our machinery we get to adulthood much better condition and it would be easier to address these questions but i think they're still very difficult and baffling to address under the best of circumstances well that's interesting uh so um some people deliberately avoid certain um impression food although they wouldn't call it that i'm sure and um and that may that may well be for very understandable self-protection uh you know i'm thinking of people who 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 refuse to go to a violent movie for example um that's just one relatively trivial example but um but i know i know a number of such people uh on the other hand it seems it it seems to me that sometimes in some movies that have violent imagery in them there are, there's also impression food that may feed or be digestible and allow people to um to get some to understand how violence emerges and how how the impression the internal processes that arise in response to that can be um digested in a useful way so it really as you, as you're saying it depends where you, where i mean you didn't put it quite this way but it depends on what on on your capacity some people may have a, a more fragile system and and may profit from not exposing themselves to certain impressions at least at certain times and yet it seems to me that 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 it's important to be able to absorb the things that life throws at us when we aren't when we don't have a choice as well and that's and that sort of that sort of robust capacity um is not cultivated seems to be solely by um walling oneself off from experience from uh from experience comment if you will well, one of the uh um, interesting puzzles uh, in dealing with people who 
suffered a lot of trauma as children uh, is the question of resilience. Some not only survive, but learn how to thrive. Others just fold. There's a, there's a great, I'll just jump in there because there's a great book I just read called, called uh, Becoming Superman. And um, it's the uh, autobiography of a um, mostly science fiction writer. He was responsible for the uh, series Babylon 5. He's, he's written a bunch of uh, uh, books, as, books as well. But he had a, a horrendous uh, childhood, really horrendous. And he, he describes it. And he was able to become this immensely creative person um, in his adult life through, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave uh, people to read the book if, if, if they're interested. But um, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a good read because it demonstrates that someone who has these incredibly difficult uh, childhood circumstances can still be immensely creative and offer so much to the world. Yes. Although I wouldn't recommend choosing a horrendous childhood to see if you can pull it off. <laughs> well, apparently uh, some of us make that choice. <laughs> it, do, it does, um, it really does beg the question of why is it that one person can have a horrendous childhood and overcome that and flourish and, and uh, so many others fold at various levels. What, what, what is that? Yes. What, why, why that difference? Is that and, and some people with, uh, you know, moderately benign or not such terrible childhoods um, don't live up to their potential. They don't thrive either. So it's a mystery as to why some people have more resilience um, than others. So I don't, I can give you a label for the phenomenon, but I cannot at the moment yeah. give you even a hypothesis. I, I mean, there's lots of uh, traditions that offer explanations for that, but uh, none of them are, uh, you know, necessarily verifiable. So we, we, we just have to continue to hold the question, I think. Mm -hmm. right. So uh, I'm sorry, did you want to continue? Uh, not at the moment, unless a thought occurs to me. Well, let me let me shift gear. Let me shift gears a little bit here, um, because uh, preparation to this our, our second uh, long conversation together, um, I reread your uh, the bio that we have for you, and um, one of the things that stood out is that you have stu you studied uh, Jungian psychology, I believe. Is that, is, is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering from the perspective of, of a, a student of Gurdjieff, a, um, a teacher, um, a group leader, that is to say, um, in the Gurdjieff tradition, what, how, do you, how do you use the Jungian material, or do you use the Jungian material um, from that part of your education? Um, and however you incorporated it into your psychology practice. Do, is, the, is any part of that relevant um, to your um, work with the Gurdjieff practices and ideas? 
It's a timely question. So I've been reevaluating uh, how I play that role mm-hmm. and uh, how it could or should oh. is the word should <laughs> uh, or might might change at this point in my life. Because all spiritual, well, virtually everything has to do with people. Mm -hmm. So, we get into all sorts of trouble with each other because people who are in charge of other people uh, really aren't even in charge of themselves for the most part. (laughs) That's so nicely put. (laughs) And, um, you know, you put someone into into any group and whatever our, and the first group we ever captured was our family. Mm-hmm. So whatever patterns have been developed in the family, whatever unresolved issues there are there in the family, whatever feelings about power and hierarchy, and, you, know, you put someone in charge of the workplace and everybody's recreating their families. Right. Uh, there was a period for a few years where I did organizational consultation. And uh, I'd never gotten into an organization where within a couple of minutes I realized, oh, it's just family therapy. <laughs> Unfortunately, except two occasions, um, every CEO or president or head of whatever would call me in to uh, work with middle management to get the children to behave. <laughs> and the problem was the kids were reacting to uh, the parents at the top. And only twice could I get the parents at the top to work with me. And that turned out to be very positive for the organizations. Otherwise, it was positive for me. I got paid. I left and, you know, nothing happened. (laughs) (laughs) But at least they they paid me to tell them what they didn't want to hear. (laughs) Or wouldn't enact. (laughs) Or or wouldn't enact. Now, um, but let's get back to your question because I was going somewhere really interesting and I've just lost the thread at the moment. What did you? What, what did this? So, with so, Robert? so the connection to fr- of or how you would use uh, the yes. uh, Jungian material in your role as a Gurdjieff practitioner, as a Gurdjieff group leader, etc. Wow! One of the double-edged swords that um, I've encountered, which I think is there in all traditions but I'm, I'm primarily concerned with uh, the Gurdjieff tradition, is the recognition on the one hand that we all have a tendency to add something of our own mm-hmm. into whatever we are um, sharing. So inevitably, we begin to distort the original teaching. So one answer to that inevitable problem is don't put anything of your own in, just by rote, you know, do the rituals, say what mm-hmm. the master said in the master's words, use the master's language, don't change a thing, because mm-hmm. you'll distort it. And that's true. On the other hand, if you do that, you kill it. It dies because the... Well, there's, that, there's, <laughs> li- there's literally no process happening in that case. <laughs> right. There's no process. Um, all you're doing is a very poor uh, distorted tape recording of the pastor's voice. And the master brought what he did or she did at that time in history in the language 
for those people and the metaphors of those people uh, using examples that made sense to those people at that time and maybe what those people needed to work on. Mm-hmm. And Gurdjieff himself said, usually by the third generation, the whole thing's dead or gone underground because with, with usually good intentions, the disciples change things. You know how it works. The master dies and people sit around for a few years and say, you know, we, we really should write all this down before we forget it. So someone writes something down, someone else says, no, 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 that's not what he said. He said it this way. No, he said it this way. Oh, so now we have two different versions and then three and four. And so you get, and then you get schisms. On the other hand, Gurdjieff said uh, that the tradition has to change with the times, otherwise it dies. Well, if you're not supposed to change it, how do you change it? And if you're supposed to change it, you're changing it. So what do you do with that dilemma? What I've come to for myself is that if you're just passing along what you've been given, you're at best a technician, which is not bad. Uh, Most occupations are full of technicians. There are very few masters. Um, And the technicians keep the structure going. But the technician uh, is not necessarily... uh, a source for uh, creativity and innovation. So, so that begs the question, um, is creativity and innovation inescapably part of transmission of, however you want to put it, spiritual technology, spiritual understanding, etc.? I think it has to be because um, whatever is being transmitted comes through the life experience and the level of being and the level of understanding of the transmitter. Now, on the other hand, if I don't make an attempt to transmit, I'm hiding, you know, if not my light, someone else's light under a basket mm-hmm. and I'm clogging up the system. I, we have to keep the circulation of uh, ideas and understanding going. So I have to manifest, but I can't manifest like the teacher. I'm not the teacher. I'm me. So how do I manifest as me? Well, I need to be honest with myself. I need to have done my own work. I have, have to have experiences in me that I'm satisfied confirm what the teacher said. And then I think it's reasonably safe as long as I preface my manifestations with, this is my understanding. Mm-hmm. And it's not based on my head. It's based on my experiences. And my experiences have informed me which of these theories in my head um, makes sense. And if I haven't had the experience, I don't care how interesting the theory is. Um, if I pass it on, I'm just a technician or a parrot, which is not bad because if it's an interesting idea with a lot of potency, I should pass it on, but I don't want to pass it on as truth. I validated because I don't know, but it's something I found interesting. Maybe you can validate it and then come back and help me with it. But I can tell you what I've validated for me. Mm-hmm. Now, but that's not going to help you. If you're interested, you have to validate it. And Gurdjieff said, uh, don't believe anybody, including me. Nothing is of any use to you unless you can validate it for yourself. But that brings up a whole other issue because we're, we so easily delude ourselves and, and fool ourselves and lie to ourselves. How can I tell what I validated and what's my imagination? That's a whole other topic.
Right. Well, that's that's a. You know, it, it's funny because that gets into a, a question of the real our relationship with the conceptual, because as long as we're thinking about it, it seems like there's a opportunity for distortion or an opportunity for um, lying to ourselves. But at a feeling level, you know, if you have a feeling of uh, presence, if you have a feeling of um, energy, if you uh, of a feeling of integration, it's hard to lie about that. I mean, that's... As long as that's all I say about it. And I can say, as you did, that um, I now, after all of these years of different kinds of inner work, um, I have that experience often. I know that experience. I trust it. But the interpretations I make about what it means, that's where. Well, let, let me, let me, yeah, well, let, let, let me, let me uh, uh, challenge that a bit because uh, even in this, even in this whole conversation, the, the first uh, 45 minutes, uh, you were saying a lot of words and there was a lot of structure there. But you were, it felt to me like you were leading from this feeling, this integrative feeling. Yes. And so to me, I believe that the, the words and the formulation will follow that feeling and uh, great articulateness will uh, uh, organize behind it. And hopefully. The, yeah. And the, and the area where we get into trouble is, is where we don't have that integrative feeling and we're sort of leading with a bunch of ideas. Yes. Yes. I would agree with that. And so that what you refer to as that integrative feeling. Um, I would say is uh, an aspect of the inner confirmation yes. that tells me that I'm sharing with you something that makes sense for me, but I, I believe it's incumbent on me to say it makes sense to me because of the experiences I've had. And I don't know if that will help you or not. If you're interested, I can share with you some things that will helpful to me and you try them and see where they lead you. I can't guarantee anything. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, we all have, uh, I mean, there's, a, there's always appropriate disclaimers. I mean, there's the disclaimer that Gurdjieff has is don't believe anything I say uh, unless you validate it for yourself. But I wonder if, you know, in, in, in all of his brilliance, he's doing the same thing. Uh, his, his accomplishment is that the uh, artifacts that he left are vastly complicated and vastly intricate, but in a sense, He's leading with a uh, this the same kind of integrated feeling and this marvelous, uh, brilliant uh, you know s series of books comes forward, uh, very articulate talks, the impressions he left on people all are a reflection of that, and none of the stuff that's left behind is, you know, it's it's all sort of subject to change, as you uh, said earlier. <laughs> All the artifacts are going to change. They're going to go away. They're going to change, and they're not—they're not ultimately uh, the the truth. Right. So, uh, speaking for myself, uh, there have been many times that I've been absolutely convinced of something, absolutely convinced, and I could speak from that conviction, and it was true at that level. Time goes by. I now see it more deeply. I see it from another angle. Well, was I wrong before? Um, well, I understand it differently now. I mean, Gurdjieff himself and, uh, changed the way he, he taught as yeah. years went by. And apparently he had stages of development and he came to different conclusions at different times. 
Um, it has to be that way. So I can only speak in the moment from what I understand in the moment um, with the hope, not only possibility, but the, the hope that eventually I'll understand so much more that this will seem small in comparison. But that's what I can tell you at the moment, sort of like a, a current status report. Right. So getting back to Rob's question, then, uh, as a group leader, I've been in a lot of groups, seen a lot of group leaders. And I think inevitably, as with any group or organization or family, um, the, the culture of the group is going to be set by whoever is at the top. Now, so I've been in groups where the person at the top was an artist, so we did crafts. Someone else was an intellect, so we studied this. Um, there has been, uh, in my impression, a great wariness in all the groups I've been in about psychology because it is stressed again and again that this is not ordinary psychology, it's not psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Even though you, you say that people come in wanting to change their personalities because that's all they think they are. They think the path to spiritual development is to be nicer persons in their personality. It takes a long time and you're lucky if you can get by that one. So people start that way. But correctly, the emphasis has been on not allowing the Gurdjieff meetings to turn into group psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So you stick with the ideas and you stick with the practice because it's not psychotherapy. On the other hand, as a therapist, I see that people struggle with their personalities, <laughs> with their and, and the and spiritual development is all about psychology. It's all psychological. It's not about the body. It's about the heart and the mind. Those are not material. They live in different non-mass-based dimensions and are integrated into the physical body. So the rules for working in there are not the same as the rules for working out in the material world. And it has seemed to me for a long time, but I couldn't get support from group leaders or colleagues that um, if people really, we really want to help people learn to, in Gurdjieff's words, uh, observe themselves, become objectively more self-reflective. Uh, There's a tremendous amount to be offered by current psychological methodology, particularly cognitive behavioral psychology. Why? Because I think they're a direct outgrowth of Gurdjieff's work. I think that the success of current psychotherapy um, owes a lot to Gurdjieff's ideas. And uh, whether they were introduced by his direct pupils or his pupils talked to people who thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. I'll experiment with it. Psychology today is saturated with the psychological ideas of Gurdjieff's work. And I think we can get help people get deeper, faster into an objective observation of themselves with some of these techniques and perspectives. Mm. However, I also realize that um, it would be inappropriate for me to make crafts the major function of a group I was leading. Um, I'm not a craftsman, for example. But I am a psychologist. But it's unfair and 
for me to expect other group leaders to see this the way I do because they're not psychologists. They don't have 50 or 60 years of that kind of work inside. And it seems to me that I've been enormously lucky because of that because I think that Gurdjieff's methods alone without the help of someone who is very psychologically oriented um, inevitably are not going to go as deep or are they going to take longer for people to work on. So I would like to see more contemporary psychological principles brought in to groups. Um, as illustrations of how the method works, but that can only be done by someone with that very specialized kind of background. So I don't think it's going to happen. And um, so for better or worse, that's just the way things are. You might wind up with an abbot who knows a lot about scripture, but knows nothing about people. So you have to struggle with that. Yeah. If you know how to struggle, if you apply the, the techniques Gurdjieff left us, it, you can still get to where you want to go. Uh, but then that person is a help, not because they're helping you get there, but by your struggle with them, you're getting there. I mean, I've learned as I've learned from my therapists and my group leaders um, both what to do, but I've also learned a lot about what not to do. And so I'm very helpful, grateful to those people who showed me what not to do. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I was the direct. Uh, recipient of right. their manifestations. Well, that, that, I that, learned that, that, how that feels. And well, I don't think that one, I'm not adopting that one. That doesn't work. That's a, that's a compassionate response. <laughs> I, I'm curious how in the, on this thread, what you think of the, uh, if you, the works of A.H. Almas, have you uh, read any of that? Material? No, I, I have not. I'm, it's a, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I have, I have mixed reactions to it, but I, uh, it'd be, well, bookmark that for a different conversation, but part of his corpus is to take traditional psychological methodology and then sort of inject the notion of essence into that. And he takes object relation theory, you know, for which has a lot of detail and good observation about the formation of the ego um, in a developing child, but injects this sensibility about essence being present at the front, which it doesn't exist in the uh, traditional literature. Right. The traditional literature is, um, doesn't touch spirituality. Yeah. It basically. Cause it's, yeah. Cause I, 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 my guess is that science has been trying for 150 years to become a real science psychology. <clears throat> yeah. You know, they want to be like a hard science, which is ridiculous. Then it's a soft, squishy science. It's more, more art. Than, than science. The things you can study with science psychologically are the most primitive uh, conditioned uh, neurological reactions and, and habits and behaviors. And I just don't find that very interesting. Although if you can relieve people of bothersome habits, it's a wonderful thing. It's great. It well, doesn't I'm interest me that much. So on that point, uh, one of the earlier conversations that we had on this uh, mystical positivist uh, show was with John Wellwood, uh, who was a student of Chogyam Trungpa uh, Rinpoche, the Tibetan spiritual teacher, but also a psychologist, wrote a number of books, 
coined the term spiritual bypass. And, um, and it was a term that, uh, it was actually a revelatory conversation for me because I'd never grasped what spiritual bypass was. Um, and, you know, uh, the brief summary of which would, would, would be when people imagine themselves as if it, and maybe even literally ignoring their current situation and state and internal processes and reaching for a transcendent reality um, yeah. and finding themselves self-sabotaging um, as a result of that uh, disparity. So, um, but I, um, I didn't grasp it because our teacher uh, who we had intimate contact with on a continuing basis never allowed that sort of disparity to emerge because uh, there was constant feedback to prevent that. Feedback at the psychological level. Right. Mm -hmm. but, but what I realized from this conversation was that for someone in Wellwood's position and the, and the position of folks feeling a, 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 a pull towards experiencing the transcendent, um, they actually could, they were a, actually able to profit from employing psychological techniques to at least ameliorate, if not resolve, some of the psychological obstacles, so many of which you were describing in this earlier conversation, or, or earlier in this conversation. So I guess what I'm proposing and, and asking for your comment about is that, is that the, the, the various um, tools of psychology as they've emerged can be uh, tools for preparing the ground for this, for the, um, for the, um, ascent into the spiritual or the, however you want to, however you want to put it, being able to resonate at a, at a higher frequency. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, uh, uh, about your perspective on that. Well, I, I agree with what you just said. I mean, we, in order to access our deeper possibilities, it has to be reasonably quiet in our head and mm -hmm. reasonably calm in our feelings. The body has to be relaxed. So with all the static produced by personality concerns and neurotic concerns and uh, unhelpful habits and this inner chatter, you can't hear anything. You can't feel anything. Or, or if you do, it, it gets all mixed in with all this other life-induced stuff and you can't separate the wheat from the chaff. So uh, I'd say it is uh, absolutely necessary to go before, if you're going to really try and go deeper that you have to study your ordinary psychological composition. Now, if you go see a psychotherapist, you'll probably get their particular theoretical orientation. You'll hear it through their school, you know, which is inevitable. Um, I think it can all be of help. I think specifically in, in my case, um, I was able to employ Gurdjieff's methodology alongside 
the very methodologies of the five or six different therapists and analysts I saw over the course of 20 years. Mm -hmm. In giving uh, the arising in me of different kinds of reactions and different ways of looking at things. But simultaneously, for me, uh, I was always trying to see it and experience it through Gurdjieff's ideas simultaneously. So uh, they, you know, they found a way of blending. Yeah. Well, I, I think one thing that came up for us when we talked with John Wellwood is that the thing I, we most appreciated about the fourth way tradition was that there really is a rich psychological dimension and there's, it's grounded in psychological work that let's say a Buddhist tradition may not be. And that what Wellwood was describing in his experience was that many people construed spiritual work as jumping immediately to this transcendental experience and that he felt like there was a, a gap that needed to be filled with this kind of spiritual psychology. And for us listening to it, you know, it's like, it took us a while to figure out, Oh <laughs> yeah. Cause our experience of spiritual work was that it started with the psychological. And in fact, there was uh, not a whole lot of time spent on the transcendental until you pretty much got your stuff together. Yes, I think there's some. Um, so would a spiritual shortcut be synonymous with spiritual bypass? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, it, it's more like a, a wannabe uh, spiritual yeah. shortcut. I mean, basically, yeah. it, it's the kind of person who does a lot of meditation and thinks they know something, but they're, they're kind of a mess uh, in terms of the relationships that they create in their life, but they right. don't see that or avoid dealing with that. No, I, I understand. And th this is, this is a great problem. It's a sad problem. Um, but again, it's, it's results from an, uh, an over-reliance on our fight or flight response. If it feels good, it must be good. Yeah. If it feels bad, it must be bad. <laughs> but in the psychological realm, it's much more nuanced than that because things that, that I need to know that uh, might be painful to my personality or I might have to relive something unpleasant in order to get another perspective on it, uh, my nervous system says, don't go near there. Right. And if I can go to yoga, uh, my body feels good and I meditate and I feel like I'm floaty, I must have arrived and all that's doing is putting a Band-Aid on a, on a festering wound. I think it's, for me, it's an explanation for why so many spiritual teachers get into trouble. Yeah. And uh, for me also, it's an example, again, of, of course, I'm very biased, but Gurdjieff's brilliance in insisting on years of preparation, what he called the first conscious shock. Mm -hmm. So that by the time you got to the second conscious shock, which has to do, I think, with um, surrendering yourself to something greater than yourself, you better have eaten much of your ego. The first conscious shock is about seeing the personality, seeing all the conditioning, seeing the egoism, and finding a way to learn to separate from it, and thereby withdraw power from it, detoxify it, because it's an, I'm getting all these impressions about my personality. And if I fall into them, then they eat me and they take the energy of my having woken up and they become more energized. 
if I'm able to look at them, but stand back from them and be interested and curious, kind of study them the way a naturalist would study an animal. Now their acti- their, their energy is coming into this part of me that's studying them. So that part becomes more energized. Kind of like, uh, I always think of uh, Jason and Medusa when you get into this part of the conversation. <laughs> and, and, and back to the gremlin. If you, if you look at it directly, if you um, look at it as um, something real, then you just energize it and it uh, turns you to turns your possibilities to stone. But if you look at it through the reflection of a system like Gurdjieff, um, with the protection of sensing your body, following your breath, and producing this literal experience of a little bit of distance, now it's not so dangerous. It's either going to eat you or you're going to eat it. It's all a question of which way the energy is flowing. So I think what happens with with um, people who uh, start out very, very seriously uh, in their spiritual work, and they, maybe they take this bypass, the shortcut, and they be ha- can having experiences of a very refined energy, and they have great insights, and it's very potent, very exciting, and they think they've arrived, but they haven't eaten their ego. And so they get all these followers around them, and very sad, unpleasant things happen because the leader was not sufficiently decontaminated before beginning teaching. That's, uh, I think Gurdjieff refers to that as being crystallized on the wrong foundation, right? Yes, that would be his and the And the uh, cure of that is actually can be pretty traumatic for them. Well, he says you have to be melted down and start over again. And right. It's really agonizing. Yeah. I mean, not, it's one thing to die to your ordinary self. It's another thing to die to your grossly inflated self. <laughs> <laughs> grossly inflated and well crystallized yes. self. Right. It's a lot harder to pass that one. <laughs> yeah, and there. But I, I can think of a few. Well, I teachers. like that metaphor. I can think of a few teachers for whom uh, uh, that has been the case. Uh, whether they are successful in melting down or not is another yeah. question. And this, and for me, this gives me compassion. Bruce's compassion for me. And I used to be as judgmental as anybody else. I had a high, high opinion of of my purity. But we're all, we're, we all suffer these contaminations. Even in Gurdjieff's uh, uh, huge book, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, uh, he says even the most highly developed, what he calls higher being bodies or souls, cannot return directly to God. Why? Because they've been alive in bodies. And they've picked up all sorts of contaminations. And so they need this special, beautiful place to go to, to hang out, until they can finish purifying themselves. So he... he creates this beautiful planet he calls Purgatory that's got 10,000 songbirds and 12,000 rivers and beautiful azure blue skies and all these souls sit in their individual caves. Um, It's nice they've got this stuff outside, but they just keep working on themselves to try and uh, separate their sense of self from all the stuff that they picked up along the way. Because otherwise, he said, what happened was that 
uh, initially the souls would go directly back to uh, the abode of endlessness, what Gershaw called the Sun Absolute. And it started to change the atmosphere of the Sun Absolute because it was bringing this stuff in from life that hadn't been separated out. So I said, oh, you guys sit on this beautiful planet. And I'll tell you what, as a reward, I'll show up frequently and give you a little attaboy and a little boost. <laughs> so it, it seems to me that when we have these special moments of intense presence and waking up and uh, great insights, that that's, uh, that's a visit from God, from endlessness, mm-hmm. visiting us here in our state of purgatory. Same attaboy. So, Saying, boy, keep going. I can't do it for you. I can give you some guides. You got to do it yourself. But um, keep at it. Now I'll, I'll drop by from time to time. See how you're doing. Can we be satisfied with that? In, or instead of falling into despair, the gremlin might come in and say, "There, see what a terrible spiritual student you are. You know, God visited and then he left, and how on is Or um, to say, "Oh, I've really made it. I don't have to do this decontamination thing. You know, I had a personal visit." So you'll follow me. <laughs> well, you've just named the uh, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think they are naturally there to help us with this continuous process of discernment, separating yeah. the wheat from the chaff, you know, getting that last ounce of gold out of that last pound of straw, <laughs> separating, 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 not getting rid of, just seeing what's separate that I used to meld all together, I now see as different levels. And each thing has its own appropriate place at its level. Um, But there's this hierarchy of experiences, which at the top is enormously refined and infinitely different from how we normally live at at the lower levels. Hmm. Well, I have a a slightly uh, different question now, but we've touched on the visitations from uh, our endless endlessness. And since I have the benefit of the Zoom, um, uh, I can see the video here. Uh, I've been intrigued in the last few times we've talked, like at the Seekers Cafe, I see this copy of I Am That on your uh, 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 bookshelf, mm. uh, which is the Nasargadatta Maharaj uh, book. and. One one of the best-selling books in our books, spiritual bookstore, yeah. by the way. By by the way, his his uh, personal physician uh, uh, either still does or used to live in uh, uh, Sebastopol, so we actually had him on our show once. But the the I think the question I have about that is that when I listen to you speak in a lot of different conversations, there is a non-dual sensibility that comes forward, uh, a sort of a sense of um, that. Uh, an understanding that at, at base, at the at the level of the absolute, in a sense, we are all the same. That uh, we're, if if maybe crests on a wave of a great sea of consciousness. And I'm interested in how that sensibility and, and that that viewpoint, how you see that reflected in the Gurdjieff work, um, because in, a, in many ways the uh, uh, a lot of the, the Gurdjieff material reads somewhat dualist in that we're in relationship to uh, uh, our absolute, you know, the, our endless endlessness or the absolute, but uh, we are not of it in a sense. So I'm just curious how you how you see that. And and uh, just to warn you, we have we probably have about uh, um, 
uh, eight minutes to cover that topic. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I see it uh, differently, Stuart, uh, through Gurdjieff's words, because he uh, he talks at great length in Neil's Above's Tales about how there's an atom of God yeah. in everything, and everything is made of multiple atoms of God. It's all atoms of God. Yeah, that's true. And that uh, this atom of God in us is the seed of conscience. It's it's the the seed that knows where it came from. It's the it's the seed that um, keeps haunting us and urging us to come home, come home, wake up, uh, fulfill your your responsibility here by uh, bringing more back than you know from your experience here than you were than you came in with. It's a parable of the talents, as I understand it. Uh, and from my reading and experience, Gurdjieff is emphatic that we are all tiny pieces of the great whole. He even talks about us as uh, uh, nerve neurons in the mind of God. Hmm. But one can become aware that one is a nerve cell in the mind of God. And that suppose it changes the relationship with, with the larger whole. Well, it, that awareness of, of, of that powerful level of connection is, um, it seems to me, what a lot of mystics write about. You know, yes. some of the most inspiring mystical writing is constantly making that point, reiterating that point, using different metaphors to explore yes. that that point. When you know, Gurdjieff talks about these four stages of consciousness, asleep at night in bed, walking around with your eyes open in the day, constantly distracted by your fantasies and daydreams and suppositions. Then this third state, objective consciousness, where you uh, experience being awake in your body, in your feelings, behind your thoughts, and you have this feeling of being carried around by this machine. And then the fourth state, which he says is what the mystics write about. For people who aren't prepared, and if you have a glimpse of that, you don't remember anything. But this is uh, where uh, our great discoveries and inspirations can can come from. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Stuart's question seems to me, that, and, I, and I, may, I may be unfair to Stuart about this, but um, there's a there's this. I think he wanted a comment from you about this tendency today to sort of resort to the non a non-dual understanding as if there's some kind of some kind of uh, <laughs> that that's the most perfect uh, uh, vision to, to aspire to, and and you know I don't I don't look at it that way, but. But I also do understand the attraction of of that clarity and apparent clarity and simplicity. Well, this paradox has disappeared for me at the moment. Um, maybe it'll be back next year if we talk again. But mm -hmm. at the moment, it's not there because, uh, again, using Gurdjieff's uh, view, um, we live in an interior vertical world. Now, the body lives in the horizontal world of materiality, but in our heart and our minds and our aspirations and our spirit, uh, we're in this vertical world that has different layers. So at one layer, it's it, like, for instance, going back to uh, 
the gremlin or vampire. Absolutely essential initially for me to learn to see it not as me. And we see that reflected uh, in uh, Gurdjieff's early methods, that if you see it in you, it's not you. you know, uh, you see your personality like another person. So I'm observing Steve, and Steve is doing these things, but I'm not Steve. I think that's essential for a certain stage to mm -hmm. change my perspective. But that's not the end. There are more stages above that. And there's a stage where I see that in, in one, from one angle, it is separate, but from another angle, it's not separate at all. But I can't start with the, it's all one, because I've mistakenly started with the idea that it's all one without the different levels of discrimination in terms of the hierarchical vertical. So I do eventually come back to where I started from, but with a very different understanding because of all the experiences. Yeah. No, that, so it's, that, not, it's not either or. Yeah, and I, I, I appreciate that uh, clarity. I mean, that that, that is uh, the, where I land on this, that it's like dualism, non-dualism, uh, these are like lenses. I kind of look at it as, uh, is it a wave or is it a particle? That, uh, yes. That yeah. it depends on the, it depends on the question and there's a utility and there's even technology that arises from a particular question. But the truth is something beyond both of those. If, if for no other reason than I can, if I can conceptualize and express both points of view, then it can't be it. Right. And you know, I can often argue two or more sides of a situation uh, very articulately, which tells me that none of them are the truth truth, right. although they are each an aspect of the truth. Right. Yeah. And that's, and what Rob is, was alluding to is that, you know, particularly in Northern California, I don't see it as much now, but uh, a few years ago, it's kind of a big wave of non-dualism was like the thing. And you'd have all these non-dual teachers who, I do their best to sound like uh, uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, um, you know, uh, talking about, oh, it's all consciousness, it's all, uh, this, that, and the other. And it always felt like there was this kind of conceptual uh, skin over all of that because basically they were resorting back to a, a reliable formula, but it didn't necessarily translate into how they were manifesting as beings. Well, yes, um, yeah. by their fruits, you shall know them. It's probably best, <laughs> best dictum to, uh, to go by when, but I have a much more charitable view now than I used to. I used to be quite, um, I think, uh, critical. Yeah. These people who, who had these big movements, part of that was jealousy. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I should be out there getting all that money and accolade because I know more than they do. Um, but part of it was, you know, it's more complicated than that, you know, when you're leading yeah. people astray, but, um, I don't see it so much that way anymore. Everybody's trying what they understand from yeah. their own level. Some people are at the level where they figure out they can make a lot of money by doing it as well. Maybe they know they're frauds. Maybe, maybe they're just sharing what they know. And certainly a lot of these methods make people temporarily feel better. Yeah. yeah. I, it seems to me as that a lot of popular spiritual movements these days are about stress management, which is not bad. The yeah. less stressed people are, the healthier they are, the less damage they do to themselves and others. And who knows, maybe they'll touch the fourth state now and then because they're not so stressed. 
but uh, it's not the rigorous um, step-by-step developmental program that I've found uh, with Gurdjieff, which puts potentially puts a really, really, really solid foundation under you so that when you, and if you do, start reaching higher impressions, they can be based on something a lot more solid than imagination and wishful thinking. Oh, that's, well, a, that's, a, that's a great place to a, uh, conclude this conversation because uh, I think I, I would like people to, uh, to leave with that um, realization, our, our listeners, that is to say. And um, I also want to leave by expressing our gratitude for this very stimulating and interesting conversation. Thanks, thanks so much. Oh, I've learned a lot. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> That, isn't that amazing thing about conversations that are just open-ended? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're also holographic. And if, and if we just talk to each other and share our impressions without trying to judge or come to conclusions, it just gets deeper and deeper. And lo and behold, it seems to be connected to everything. So is it one or is it two? <laughs> you have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show... We've been playing a Zoom conversation recorded on February 2nd, 2020 with Stephen Aronson, fourth-way group leader, writer, and retired psychologist. He has made a number of presentations to the All and Everything International Humanities Conference and participates in groups in Portland, Maine, Moscow, Russia, and Toronto, Canada. Steve is a founding member of the Seekers Cafe, a website supporting an online community dedicated to creating an effective portal to genuine spiritual practice. In two weeks on The Mystical Positivist, Rob and I will speak with Christine Scarda. Christine Scarda is a philosopher and scientific theorist whose professional career has spanned the fields of philosophy, neurophysiology, and cognitive science. She has both drawn on and contributed to the insights of these fields in her quest to understand the nature of perception. This quest eventually propelled her out of the research laboratory and onto a meditation cushion where Skarda turned to methods of inquiry drawn from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition to study the perceptual process from another angle. An ordained nun, Skarda has by now spent over a decade and a half in meditation retreat in the United States and India under the guidance of some of the greatest living members of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama and His Holiness Chetsang Rinpoche. She returned to America in 2007 and continues her retreat in California. Occasionally she leaves retreat to lecture or teach to a diverse audience, offering her scientific background to Buddhists and her Buddhist insights to scientists and philosophers. Tune in for that show on Saturday, February 29, 2020, from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County on Friday, February 14th at Mindy Rivers as part of an ongoing class, Angels the Native Way with Native Californian healer Trina Vega. That's Friday, 7.15 to 9.15, also uh, recurring on not only the 14th, but the 21st and 28th. That's at Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol, California. Trina writes, I have experienced angels my entire life of a short journey on earth of 62 years. I will assist you in linking with and hearing your own angels. Come join us in really getting to know your angels, spirit guides, and guardian angels. I will also include hearing from past loved ones. Let's start off the new year with opening to the spiritual native realm of angels. Please contact me at 707-391-7373 and I will be more than happy to answer any questions. Many blessings, Trina Vega. 
Trina Vega is a Native American healer who practices a diverse menu of healings from Native Grandmother Ocean to Healing with the Angels. She is an intuitive reader and has practiced and offered reading for 30 plus years. She is the youthful and energetic grandmother to 18 grandchildren. And then on Saturday, February 15th, Gurdjieff in Daily Life, W.A. Nyland's The 1500 Series. That's with Cynthia and Robert Kosut and Jim Huntington. That's Saturday, February 15th at 7 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol, California. A student of Gurdjieff, W.A. Nyland's teachings have been captured in short excerpts from his lecture talks in a book form in the 1500 series. Mr. Nyland's students will share their understanding and why they find this book useful. Gurdjieff's ideas open a door to the possibility of real inner growth. Mr. Nyland, who studied with Gurdjieff from 1924 until Gurdjieff's death in 1949, spoke with eloquence and clarity about the application of these ideas. Robert and Cynthia Kosit have been committed to the application of the ideas of Gurdjieff for over 50 years and were students of W.A. Nyland. A research scientist in control theory and quantum information systems, Robert works in academics and industry as a visiting research scholar at Princeton University and partner in his engineering company. Cynthia, an educator of young adults, leads classes for Gurdjieff's sacred dances in California, New York, and Tucson. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.